You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible-teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of the book of 1 Peter. We're calling Road Trip. With this week's message, here's pastor to high school and college students, Nolan Smith. Well, it's been a couple of weeks since we were last in the book of 1 Peter, and so I think it's helpful for us to, to maybe get a refresher on uh, just what this epistle is all about. So the Apostle Peter is writing to believers, and, and so his audience is made up of, of Christians, and, and they are living in a world that is hostile to their faith. They're enduring trials and, and challenges to the Christian faith, and so what Peter's doing is he's writing He's writing to help encourage them in the midst of those to, to continue on in their faith. And so Lance took us through the opening passage a couple of weeks ago, and, and we saw what Peter described as their living hope, our living hope. And it's, it's this gospel message of Jesus and what he did on the cross, that he went to the cross, he, he died for our sins, and, and that he rose again from the grave to give us eternal life. But not just that, but that in the future, Jesus is going to come again and he's going to make all things new, set all things right. And and this idea of this gospel message, Peter described it as as that into which angels long to look. And, And so in this passage this week, Peter is going to issue a calling. He has encouraged believers to live this lifestyle as sojourners in a foreign land, a place that's not their home. And so this week we're going to see this calling, and, and Peter's going to issue, a, it's a high calling for us as believers. And any time that you are given a charge to, to do something, a calling like this, I, I think for me, the initial question is, why should, I, why should I do something, especially when it's going to be really hard? So, so he's going to answer that as well. And before we, before we do get into this passage, I want to encourage everybody to just to do something with me now. So, so I want you to just, wherever you sit right now, and, and you could write the, this down, or, or you could just have it in, in your mind as we, as we do this, but I want you to answer this question. And the question is, what is difficult for you about following Jesus in this world? For you, as a Christian, trying to live out your faith in this world that, that is hostile to your faith, what challenges specifically do you confront? What what stands in your way? What do you feel like holds you back from fully living it out? Because for some of you, for some of you, you may live your life in a place and in a setting around people where you spend most of your time where they're not not Christians. And and so you may may be around people who who don't share your faith, and, and maybe they, they don't really like the Christian faith. And, and so for you, there's a, there's a tension, a social pressure that comes with trying to be a Christian around these people. And you find that very difficult to do. Maybe you're somebody who, you look around the world around you and you recognize God has, has certain things that he says we, we, we should do this and, and that we shouldn't do that. And, and we look around at a world where, where people, they, they are doing the things that God calls us not to do, to abstain from. And we see people that they're not doing the things that we feel like as Christians we need to be doing. And so we might look around and we feel like, hey, there's a lot of people out there, they're not Christians or they're not living out this faith and they're getting to enjoy things that I don't get to enjoy. And that's really hard for me. And so you feel, you feel the temptation that comes with trying to be a Christian in this world in that way. Or maybe you're somebody who you have someone in mind and, and, and you're thinking, well, there, there are people that I just cannot, I can't forgive them. And I know that I'm supposed to forgive because that's what God did for me and I know that's what we're called to do. But, 
But there, there's somebody in my life that I just, I just can't, I can't forgive them. I can't extend that grace. And so that's a real challenge for you to live out that faith and, and to extend grace as you know that we're called to do. Or, or maybe that person is who you see in the mirror. And, and maybe, you, maybe you look at yourself and you go, I have just done too many things. I, where I'm at right now in my life, I, I can't be forgiven for what I've done. And, and you find it incredibly difficult to understand God's grace even for you. But whatever the answer to that question, what's difficult for you about being a Christian in this world, living out that faith, whatever that answer is, I want you to bring that with you as we read today's passage. I want you to consider that. And our passage starts in chapter 1, verse 13, where Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so Peter begins with that word, therefore, because he is, he's pointing back to that message, that gospel message. And he says, because of what Jesus has done, because of the gospel message of what, what he's done and what he's going to do, and he points back and he says, therefore, because of that, and then he leads into this charge. And he says, prepare your minds for action. Now, the, the Greek language in this, it, it actually translates to gird up the loins of your mind, which is it's vivid, right? So I, I didn't know my mind had loins, but it, it does. Yours does too. So, so, so he says to gird up the loins of your minds. And so this is, a, this is kind of a weird picture for us, but it, it played on some really familiar Im- imagery for the people that he's writing to because, because back then people wore these, these long, loose-fitting garments, these robes and these tunics that would, they would hang loosely. And so it was real comfortable if you were walking around from town to town or you were, you were, you were engaging in trade or going to the market or whatever you might have been doing. But if you had to do hard physical labor or, or you were a soldier, you had to go to combat, this was cumbersome. And so you, you needed to be prepared. And so what, what they would do is they would take all this loose fabric and, and they would bunch it up and they would push it between their legs and back through and then they would split that in half and they'd tie it around. And, and it, would, it would sort of look like, like almost like modern day like athletic shorts, you know. I actually had a really, a really good um, illustration of this. But it was one of these all rights reserved things, which I'm like, anytime you've got information on how to gird up your loins, you've got to protect that information, right? So, um, so it, would have, it would have looked really like you would have been able to see it better, but you just have to imagine with me. So, so he says, prepare your minds. And then he uses this phrase, be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. It's the idea that, that the mind is not given to emotional compromise or wariness that it's sharp, it's ready to go. And so you, you could think about like an athlete going into a game and saying, I gotta get my mind right. I've gotta eliminate distraction. I gotta focus on, on the task at hand. And he says, that's the kind of mindset that you need to have. And, and you can think about if you were maybe go, going to, to train for a marathon, which I, I don't know why you'd do that, but you might. I don't know why people do that, but, but, but you, might, you might train for a marathon, and, and in training, you might want somebody to help you, a, a coach or some a trainer to come in and, and assist you in this and, and help you know what to do. And so they might say something like this, hey, during this process, I want you to, I want you to watch your diet. I want you to make sure that you're eating clean throughout this, this process. And I also, I want you to, I want you to stay limber, right? Be, be stretching and staying flexible, I, I think. I don't know. Again, I don't know what people do when they're training for marathons, but it's probably something like that. But you think about what both of those things are. They're, they're, they're states of readiness, right? They're, they're how, to, how to be, but they're not what to focus on. And so what Peter does here is he tells you, here's a, here's a state of mind that I want you to take on. But neither of these things are a place in which to direct your mind. 
And so what this trainer might say to you is, along the way, while you're doing these things, here's what I want you to do. Every day, I want you to, at some point, just close your eyes, and I want you to picture that finish line. And I want you to imagine yourself crossing that finish line and seeing all your friends and your family there to celebrate with you, and then you're getting your uh, medal or your bumper sticker. What are they? I don't know what they give at the end of those, but uh, you know the bumper sticker, the 26.2. I mean, if look, if I ran that far, I'd want people to know it too. But but you, they, you know, imagine that you're getting that at the end. Imagine that finish line, and let that motivate you. Let that draw you through this process. That's going to be hard. This training process is going to be difficult. You need motivation, and so set your mind on that future reality. And so, what's the finish line for the Christian? As we endure a world that's, that's hostile towards us, if we struggle through these things that make it difficult to be a Christian, what's our finish line to focus on? And it's, it's the return of Jesus. That's what Peter points us to. He says, fix your mind on that and allow it to motivate you through to the end. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so he uses this phrase, obedient children. And, and you might think, well, why, why didn't he use the phrase obedient subjects, obedient disciples? And I think, I think the reality is that children, just it captures the nature of that loving relationship, the affection of God as a father for his kids. And so, so he says, obedient children, and addresses us that way. And then you think, well, well why obedient children? Could have just said children. That captures that affection, right? But look, we as parents know that children who act like children, right? There's a difference between that and children who are obedient. And I thought there'd be some amens there. So, so there's children who are obedient. And, and we recognize the difference that, that, that exists there. And, and so for, us, for parents, we think, yeah, that makes life easier for us as parents. But, but the reality is that when a parent is raising their child the way that God calls us to, as we, as we raise our children faithfully, then for the child who is obedient, they flourish. That's the best thing for them, to be obedient to the loving instruction of a parent. And so that's why he addresses us this way. He says, obedient children, be obedient children. Because recognize your identity as a child, but be obedient in that and understand that that's the best thing for you. And he says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, conformity is an interesting idea. It's a, it's a central idea in, in the human condition, right? We, we're, we're all familiar with, with conformity. We, we know what this is like. Caleb and I, as, as youth pastors, we, we have conversations a lot where we, we observe these students that'll come to youth group on Wednesday nights. And they'll come every week. They come and they seem to be wearing different outfits or, well, not outfits, wardrobes. And we're surprised that they change clothes, I guess, right? No, we, we see them come and they're wearing different wardrobes every week, a, a whole different look. And we're, we know exactly what's going on. And, and you do too, right? It's these kids that are, they're looking around for some place to be accepted. They're, they're looking for a way for their peers to see them and accept them who, for who they are. And so they're stepping into these different identities. They're conforming to what they think will, will bring acceptance. And so the truth is, you're all susceptible to this too, right? This, this happens to all of you. It doesn't happen to me. I'm, I'm above this, so. Oh, wait. No, I'm not. I'm not above this. Uh, 
I've conformed too, right? Like I've tried conformity, tried the long hair look, right? Tried to grow my hair out. Maybe people like me with long hair. Ouch. And then, and then I did whatever the look was that involved puka shell necklaces. That was a bad, that was a bad phase. And, and then I've, I've, I went through the skater phase. I just had my skateboard and skated around, wanted people to, to think it was cool to skate. Another swing and a miss. So, uh, so we, we all recognize this idea of conformity, and, and we've all tried it. We, we, we've seen it play out in our schools, right? Like we've, we've been in the cafeteria, and, and we've, we've walked around, and we've seen the different people at the different tables, and we, we see these people are conforming to this identity, trying to fit into this group, conforming to that one, fit in over there. And, and so we, we recognize that it happens. But here's the truth. It doesn't just happen to kids. It happens to all of us, even as adults. And by the way, you laugh at this picture. I could do this to any one of you. Go on your Facebook page. I could, I could pull up the same kind of pictures. And some of you are like, well, I don't, I don't have Facebook for this reason. Good for you. Some, some, of our, some of our younger people are going, maybe it was a mistake to take 1,000 pictures of myself every day and post them online. But let this be a lesson. If you learn nothing else. But, but even as adults, right, like we're, we're familiar with this. We're familiar with this idea of conformity. We, just, we still do it. We still conform to the world around us. And I'll, and I'll put it this way. I dare you next time. Next, you didn't think the preacher was going to dare you to do something. I dare you next time you go to, to a place and you get on a crowded elevator and there's people on that elevator, get on the elevator and just face the people. Don't turn around and face the door. Just try it. Try it. Get on the elevator. Click. Make eye contact with everybody in there. How's it going? What floor are you going to? Huh? Right? No, you, you, everybody, you're in here like cringing at the thought of getting on that elevator and looking people in the eye. Why? Because nobody does that. Instead, what you're going to do next time you get on that elevator, you know, oh, don't make eye contact. You're going to hear a noise. Don't look. Uh-uh, no. We're going to wait till the door's open. All right, here we go. And you're out, right? That's what we do. It's a pattern that we just conform to what everybody around us is doing. And the whole point of this idea of conformity is that conforming to this world, that's our default state. That when we, when we are left to our sort of own devices and our default setting, we're not intentional about it. We just, we conform to the world around us. And what does the world around us look like? The world around us, it's not dictated by the moral decrees of God. We don't, we don't have... People constantly all around us, everywhere we go, just all trying to live out the Christian faith. And so it's just, we just conform to the Christian faith naturally. We live in a world that's hostile to the Christian faith. It's, it's people that are living according to their own selfish desires. They're, they're just trying to find acceptance. And that's not evil to want acceptance, but to find it in the wrong places, you'll do, you'll do things that God doesn't want you to do. And so, so Peter says, don't conform to this world. Paul says the same thing in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And so they both play on the same idea. They both get the same idea. Don't conform. Don't allow yourself to just, in your default, look like the rest of the world. He says, don't do that. But what, what does he say to do? What's his instruction? Instead, he says, be holy. Be holy. And what does holy mean? It just means be set apart from sin to God. What holiness means is it means look different. Be different from the sinful world around you. God wants his people to look different. And if the church doesn't look radically different from the world around us, I would submit we're not, we're not doing a very good job of, of responding to this call to holiness. 
that we need to be holy in how we look different from a sinful world, that we stand out. So I want you to consider again your struggles. I want you to consider what you brought to the table today. Consider those things that make it difficult for you to live out your Christian faith. And then I want you to consider this. How would a non-Christian, somebody who does not follow Jesus, how would they respond in those struggles? What would they do in the midst of those, of those, those challenges? Would they conform? Would they, would they pursue those desires for pleasure, for, for drunkenness and drugs? What, would, they, would they conform? Would they withhold forgiveness? Would they say, you know, you know what these people have done or what this person has done, it's, 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 too, it's too much. I'm not, I'm not going to forgive them. I'm going to hold on to this grudge. Right? And so we, we have to recognize that we're called specifically to live different from that. That we're to look different from the world around us. And I want to acknowledge something. When I say the word holy, I know there are people in here who hear that word and they go, yeah, but that's, that's not me. I, that can't be me. I can't be holy. Look, I've, I've messed up too much that holiness is just, it's out of the question for me. And to that, I would say two things. Number one, it's a call to holiness. It's not a call to perfection. Look, the Bible is very clear about this. The Bible is very clear that, that no one is perfect. And so, so you don't have to think that God is, what he's saying here is, hey, from now on, don't sin anymore. You're going to be perfect, and if you don't, just don't bother. We don't have to worry that that's what he's saying here. It's not a call to perfection. But second, that if, if we've sinned, and we all have, then we can, we can be holy even in our response to our own sin. And so it, it means that, that whether you're somebody, and maybe you find yourself today and you're going, I, like, I, I'm not actually in a, in a really bad spot. Like, I, I feel like I've done a pretty good job, been pretty consistent, pretty faithful in my, in my relationship with Jesus lately. I mean, things are going pretty well for me. Or you might be at the other end of that spectrum, and you might be going, man, I just, I have, I have messed up. I've messed it all up. And my life is a total disaster. Like, I'm just, I'm just covered in my own sin right now. And there can't possibly be a way out of that. And so whichever end of that spectrum or wherever in between you find yourself today, the reality is in any one of those places, we have two choices, right? We can either, from that point forward, move towards sin. We can continue in sin. or We can move towards sin. Or we can orient ourselves from there, wherever that is, orient ourselves towards God, a holy God, and pursue him from there, to pursue holiness, to try and be like the God whom we follow. And so no matter where you are, you can make that choice. Holiness is a matter of responding. It's a matter of from where you are right now, which direction are you going to go? And we can all make that choice to move towards holiness. And why? Peter says it's because our God is holy. And so if we're going to follow after a holy God, we need to be holy ourselves. Verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. 
See, as, as believers, we, we, we look at, at the judgment of God. We believe there's two forms of God's judgment. There's, there's going to be two distinct times when God pronounces judgment. So there's, on the one hand, a form of judgment where everybody's going to stand before a God, and he has this standard of righteousness. And, and he says, I'm, I'm making all things new. I'm going to create a new heaven and a new earth, and it's going to be this, this eternity without sin. And I'm going to dwell with my people there. But there's going to be no sin in that place. And so no one in sin can, can be there. And so he's got this standard of righteousness. In order to enter into that place, you can have no sin. And so that, that standard of righteousness, it's either you are righteous, you are perfect, or you're not. And everybody's going to have to stand before God and, and reckon with that. And there's going to be people who respond differently. Some people are going to look at that and they're going to go, yeah, God, I, see, I don't like your standard. And I had a standard and I think I was pretty good according to my own standard. Like I did what I thought was right. And, uh, and yeah, so I think I, I think I lived a pretty good life. I think what I did ultimately measures up to uh, I should be you know, rewarded for that or, or whatever the case may be. But, but I chose my way. And what God's going to do is he's going to give them their choice. He's not, he's not going to force them. He's going to give them over to the choice that they've made. They don't want that reality. They want their own form of righteousness. And he'll allow for that. There's going to be others, though, who stand before God, and they're going to look at, they're going to look at that situation, and they're going to go, yeah, I know, and I'm not perfect, God. I know that your standard of righteousness was perfection, and I didn't meet that. I never could. But here's the thing. You sent your son to die for me. You sent your son who would, who would, on the cross, he would give me his righteousness and he would take my sin to the cross. And so I, I, I took that gift and I, I just trusted in that. And so God, I, I'm not here on the merit of my own work. I'm here because you gave me Jesus and God's going to look at those people and he's just going to see his sinless, perfect son. And they're going to enter into that eternal life with him. And yet there's this other form of judgment. And so, so what, what, what Peter says here is that, that God judges impartially according to each one's deeds. And you look at that and you go, well, there's no, your deeds don't matter over here. In this, in this judgment, what, what, what good are your deeds? And the reality is, to some degree, you're right, your deeds don't matter. Because no amount of good deeds can get you into that eternal life. So, so how does God judge impartially according to deeds? Well, because there's this other form of judgment where believers who have trusted in that and they want to enter into and will enter into that, that eternal life, they're going to stand before God and there's going to be another kind of judgment where God's going to, he's going to look at the works of our lives. And there's this, this imagery in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where Paul describes it as, as taking the works of your lives and putting them on this altar and God's going to set them to the test of fire. And, and what's going to happen is if they, if they burn up and they're, and they're gone, then that, that means that they weren't, they weren't very uh, eternal in nature, right? That you invested in things of this world, not in eternity. It's that idea that Jesus talks about, store up your treasures in heaven. The people who stored up their treasures in this life that were so invested in what this world had to offer will have nothing to show at that time. And yet those who took what God gave them, took the gifts and the opportunities that God gave them, and they said, God, I want to I use these for your glory. I want to invest these in eternal significance. I want to do what you call me to do. They're going to put their works on that altar, and that fire is going to burn, and they're going to remain, and, and they're going to get a reward in proportion to the works that they did. And so that's how we can say that, that God judges impartially, and yet Peter also points to this idea that we were ransomed by the blood of Jesus. 
that both of those forms of judgment, they show God's justice and they show his mercy. And both of those things should motivate the way that we live our lives. That we should live motivated by the, by the mercy, the grace that he shows us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that we didn't deserve that, and yet he gave us the free gift to give us eternal life because he wanted to be with us for eternity. So we're motivated by that grace, but we're also motivated by that justice, that we recognize that there are real consequences to how we live this life, that there's a reward for, for living obedient to him. And so Peter tells us these things so that it will motivate how we live. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now, the way this is worded, it's a little confusing. So, so if I could, I, I'll summarize it this way. What, what Peter's saying here is that the only things in this life that are eternal are our relationships. He points to the eternal nature of God's word to make the point. But what he's, what he's saying is, in this life, there's nothing that's eternal except for the relationships that we have. And what does that mean? It should point us to love our brothers and sisters. That because relationships are the only thing that lasts into eternity, that we should look at that and we should, we should invest in those relationships, that we should love our brothers and sisters. And the way that he describes that love is sincere and earnest. And, and those words, the language that he uses, it, 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 it describes this love that's not held back. It, it doesn't reserve itself. It's relentless. It's unbridled. And so what does relentless love look like? Have you ever tried to love someone relentlessly? There are challenges to loving people relentlessly. Because sometimes when we're trying to love somebody, something that might hold us back is we go, ah, I don't know, man, they've done something, they've done some really bad things. And so you want to be careful not to extend too much love, right? I, I, I want to be careful. I don't want to give them whatever they want. And, and the reality is that, that unrestrained, unbridled, relentless love, it doesn't mean giving people whatever they want. It means not holding back. And, and preserving ourselves. It means we don't look at things and go, it'd be kind of risky to love that person, right? That's, that's too much love. That's, that's risky. But the reality is when God loved us, he loved us relentlessly. There was no self-preservation in the way that God loves us. God didn't just love us enough to get by. He loved us relentlessly. That there was risk involved that when God loves us the way that he does, he offers this grace that it can be taken advantage of. But that doesn't stop him. It shouldn't stop us either. And so Peter reminds us that we have been redeemed. We've been born again. And we're not of this world. We have eternal life. And so the relationships that we have with our brothers and our sisters, those are eternal too. So according to Peter, we shouldn't just live in light of eternity. We should love in light of eternity as well. I love looking at the Bible and seeing patterns and, and themes repeated and, and tying it all together and, and illuminating the message in new and exciting ways. I was, I was in Joe's office last week and we were talking about this and just how, how much fun it is to, to really dig in and to study God's word and to see these things. And, and when they, they, they come out, it just it brings this excitement. And, and I love seeing these themes repeated. And, and there's this theme repeated here that, that happens throughout Scripture. It's the pattern of, of God calling his people. 
God calls his people. Peter is drawing on this, this idea of God calling his people. He quotes Leviticus. And back in Leviticus, God was giving laws to his people, laws that would, that would actually they would dictate how his people would live in, in, a, in a world surrounded by other nations. And God wanted his people to look different. So in Leviticus, he issues these laws to make his people look different from the world around them. And the reason is what he told Abraham in Genesis. He said, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God called his people, Israel, to be a holy nation, to be set apart. That they were supposed to look different, radically different from the world around them. And the reason, the reason God called his people to look different, it was because of his love for all the nations. That God called his people specifically as a nation to be different, not because he loved them more than the rest of the world, but because he loved the whole world so much that he wanted to tell them about himself through his people. And so he gave his people, there was no merit on their own goodness. They weren't especially good. That's not why he chose them. He chose this people and he said, you're going to live this way. These are the laws I'm going to give you. And these laws, they're going to show the people around you who I am. And I'm giving you these laws because I love all of them and I want to draw them to myself as well. And here in the New Testament, we see this theme of God calling his people once again. God is once again calling his people, this time the church, to be holy and set apart from the world. And as Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some, point, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Again, here we see God is, he is set on giving every person the chance to hear this message. He wants everyone to know about the love and the grace that he has for us and what he did with his son in Jesus. And so he wants everyone to know that. And so he's going to use his people, the church, to communicate that message. And the way that we communicate that to the world is that we live the way that he's called us to live. That we are holy because he is holy. In the Old Testament, we see God establishing his people for the purpose of representing himself to the nations. And this would require the establishment of a nation, that there, was, that there needed to be a place, a physical place, where he could establish this nation of people among the nations, that they could all look and see God's people. And so it meant removing an evil and a corrupt people from that land and establishing his people there and giving them laws and calling them to holiness and saying, you're going to be holy and the people around you, they're going to look to you and see that and they're going to come to know me because of this. So we see this physical kingdom that he creates in the world for the purpose of drawing people to himself. But in the New Testament... God, he's still calling his people. He's still establishing his people. But it's not, it's still for the purpose of drawing people to himself, but it's not a physical kingdom. Now it's a spiritual, transcendent, inverted kingdom. And it's not conquest by which we'll establish ourselves. Now the church, we're meant to establish ourselves by submission. And our message is subversive. That God wants us now to be humble and love people well, that we are called to draw the world to him through love. And so I'll leave you with this. I'm sorry, I left off the last part of that. Why does God call us? Why? Why is there this calling? Why does God call his people? It's because he is on a mission. 
God has a mission to draw the whole world to himself. That's what he wants to do. He wants to make himself known so that everyone has a chance to hear about his love and his grace and come to have eternal life. That's his mission, and he wants us to be a part of it. He wants to use us as instruments in his mission. That's why he issues this calling. Why should we respond? Why should his people respond to this calling? The reason is because we, as his people, we've experienced this. We've experienced that love and that grace that he has. We know the abundant life to which he calls us. We, we know what it's like to have the hope of eternal life. And so in a world that's so broken by sin, we, look, we should look around at people who don't know him and go, I want you to know about him too. That our mindset should be, I got this free gift, I didn't deserve it, and you should have it too. And so I want to go out and I want to tell everybody. There was a, a famous pastor who once said it this way. I'm a nobody telling everybody about somebody who can save anybody. This should be our mindset. This is why we respond, because he saved us, and he could save you too. So we should go out into a world, a broken world, that doesn't know him and bring this message of hope, this gospel message. So what exactly is our calling? Our calling is to be different. But not just to be different, to be holy, to be set apart Last week, we heard Preston Sprinkle up here, and, and, and he described how Jesus was somebody who held to a high ethical standard, the highest possible ethical standard. And yet, somehow, there were constantly people who failed to live up to that standard, miserably, failed miserably to live up to that standard. And those people, they still drew close to Jesus. They still wanted to be around him. What a beautiful picture of, of God's calling for us to be holy, to, to hold to a high moral standard, not compromising on the truth of who God wants us to be and what he calls us to do, not compromising, but doing it in a way that is loving and it draws people to himself. About six and a half years ago, Suze and I, my wife, we, we got married and, and we, had, we had this great wedding and, and so many of our friends and family members, our, our communities that, that had loved us so well, they were there in attendance. And, and so... What, what ended up happening is between my, my groomsmen and her bridesmaids and our families and, and then the church families that, that we had in our respective homes, mine here and, and hers back in Virginia, those, those church bodies were represented by people that came to our wedding. And, and all these people came to our wedding to support us and to celebrate us. And they came and they loved us really well and they loved each other. And, and so it was just this great celebration where we just got to be with our friends and our family and we got to enjoy a night together and, and just experience the love of our communities and that those communities got to come together and, and join us together. It was, it was a great night. And Sue's older brother, Mark, was there in attendance. And, uh, and, and Mark, Mark got to interact with all these people. He got to watch all of these people. He, he, he actually told Suze later on, he, he specifically talked about seeing Blake, who's our worship pastor. He saw, saw Blake uh, sing a song, a worship song at our wedding. He interacted with some of my other groomsmen, other people that are from Grace Church right here, and, and he got to have these interactions. He got to, got to meet these people who came together and just loved each other, loved us really well, and they loved him too. And he experienced that, and he, and he, he told Suze, he said, there's something about those people, something different, and it's something that I've been missing. And Mark didn't even realize that he had been missing it, but, but Mark recognized when he was there and he was around these people that just loved so well. 
loved because, because of what Jesus had done. And it wasn't, it wasn't this strategic thing. Uh, the people didn't, we didn't all call each other and say, hey, we're going to show up to the wedding. Okay, I want you to love this person and then you're going to love that person and we're going to make sure we say these things. It wasn't like that. It was just a bunch of people who, out of a response to what God has done for them, were living out this calling. They were living a lifestyle of love, brotherly love. And they came together and Mark saw it and it changed something in him. And, and Susan, Mark have a cousin named Katie. Katie married a guy named Shane and, and Shane was somebody that Mark always looked up to and um, who was sort of a spiritual big brother even to me. And, and, and he got in touch with Shane. Sue's told Shane about this conversation she'd had with him and so Shane followed up and they ended up reading through the book of John and, and Shane said, Mark, Mark put his trust in Jesus and we were so grateful for that. And about three or so years ago, Mark died. And, um, and we took a lot of comfort in knowing that, that Mark had trusted in Jesus, and now he's home with him. And the reason Mark trusted Jesus was because he saw the love of God's people at work. He saw God's people loving each other and loving him. That's what can happen when we answer this call. So that's the challenge for us today. Can we, in the midst of whatever trials we face, whatever we bring here today, and we say, this is what's hard for me about being a Christian, can we as a church family come together? And can we take on each other's burdens? Can we respond graciously to bear with one another? Can we be defined by our love for each other and our love for people around us in such a way that it draws people in? And they would come in and they would come to know the love of God and they would trust in him and they would find eternal life in him as well. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.